Welcome back to Winning the Battle for Talent, the podcast where our customer service experts discuss people management, reducing attrition, and helping employees thrive. Let's join the conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the J.D. Power Winning the Battle for Talent podcast. I'm Michael Vermillion with J.D. Power, and with me today are Mark Miller and Scott Killingsworth from J.D. Power and Ted Narden from Fifth Talent. So Mark and Scott and Ted, uh, welcome. Hey, Mike. Always great to be. Yeah, great to be back. Thank you. Yeah, hi, Mike. Looking forward to the discussion. Yep. Thanks, Mike. So, so I want to thank uh, everybody listening to the podcast for joining us again today. Um, you've been on the, a journey with us around this topic of um, battle for talent, and one of the things we've discussed so far is that the supervisor is a real key to success when it comes to the battle for talent. So a question would be, what do they need to do? And we've come up with four imperatives that we'll be walking through over the next few episodes. So Ted, why don't we start with the first one? What, what is the, the first imperative for, uh, for supervisors? Absolutely. The first imperative is to change your mindset. Um, and uh, in changing your mindset, really depends on who you're referring to. Um, if in the case, for example, if you're a supervisor listening to this, we're really saying it's an imperative for you to think about your mindset and change that perspective. But if you're in senior uh, leadership, it's changing your mindset as well, both yourself and how you work with those around you, but also helping to change the mindset of those who work with frontline employees. Yeah. Hey, Ted, this is Mark. Um, so let me throw over a softball to you. Uh, why is that imperative number one, in your opinion, your experience as we've been working through this and working with clients? What, what have you noticed out there? You know, it's a it, great question, Mark. It's a little bit of a softball, but I want to um, maybe take this on a, a somewhat outside of our, our world that we operate in daily. Other people have found that frontline leadership is the key to effectiveness. It's, we haven't invented this as businesses. For, for example, the modern military, people who I work with uh, who are veterans of military um, branches, every branch, has expressed that small unit leadership is the key to modern military effectiveness. And, you know, I, I would uh, defer to... To Michael here to keep me straight on this because uh, you're a veteran of the Navy. Did you see this as well during your time when you served? Yeah, I, I did, Ted. So um, the way the Navy's organized on a, a ship or a submarine, I was on a submarine, is uh, the, the lowest level of organization is called the uh, division. And at the division level, you're in charge of a certain set of uh, pieces of equipment. Uh, everybody's got the same uh, rating, same same type of uh, training. Uh eight to 10 people, some divisions might be a little bit bigger, uh, led by a um, senior uh, enlisted person. So, so that's somebody who has been in the Navy for 20 up to 30 years, uh, and then a young junior officer. And so that was kind of my first job uh, on the submarine was leading a division. I, I think I led four of them over my three and a half years on uh, on the boat. Uh, but that's, um, that's, that's where it happens. That's where communications um, are happening. That's where the training is happening. Uh, that's where uh, problems are being solved. Um, not just um, in terms of operations, but also uh, even you know, personnel-wise. So, so certainly that's um, 
the way the Navy's organized, and I'm sure other branches are organized that way as well. And I think that's a perfect explanation, Mark, of, uh, and I love that, is that the idea of they're closest to the problems and the challenges and the people. And so those small unit leaders, whether they be, um, you know, senior enlisted personnel, um, you know, possibly junior officers, they can sense very much what's happening. They're closest to the problem. They're quickest to intervene. And I think that we often leave them out in business um, that they are really the key to being the, the culture of the company. They communicate that culture, but they also, as perfectly stated, is they solve the problems on a very real-time basis. So I think, Mark, I think that's why they're so important um, to uh, operation. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, in our experience, um, bringing the analogy back from the military to you know, the contact center world, when we did our uh, studies of breakdowns and where alleviating breakdowns actually yields the greatest impact, it does get down to that uh, small group leader. Um, I'm curious, Ted, um, about the group up from them. So, you know, in typical parlance, you have a manager, manager might have, you know, four to eight supervisors, the supervisors have 10 to 20, you know, roughly uh, reps that they work with. Um, as we start to drill down a little bit into changing uh, the mindset, talk a little bit about what each of these groups that I just mentioned, the manager and the supervisor group, like what specifically is being changed within that mindset? Um, and from the manager perspective, I think it's, uh, as we just said, recognizing first and foremost that the key to your operation, the success, the smooth operation, if you will, really relies in the supervisor. And that the supervisor has really only two ways to improve their effectiveness. One is by trial and error, and the other is by being developed. And um, so the question is, from, from your perspective as a, as a senior leader, which would you rather have them take on their learning? Is it by, um, you know, trial and error uh, is not a good way to do it. So I think the mindset shift that has to happen from the management team is how do I develop my supervisory team? And how do I do that both formally and informally? Because both are needed. And then from the supervisor perspective, I think that it's recognizing that we're moving into a, what I would consider to be a new error, error, era of management, and you don't want to make an error in that. Um, so you have to change your mindset also to the future of leadership. And I think there's one way to characterize this, and that is that we normally work on a basis of managing the whole team. And I think now we have to switch more towards managing individuals. And by doing that, we move from cause and effect management, which is I do this or I say this and the team does this. I think that's gone away. It's just that I, I don't think you're going to find if I do this, somebody responds as this. <clears throat> Instead, we have to look at it as we're working with those people on a one-to-one -one basis. But also as a result of doing that, the big result here, the end piece is we have to begin to understand what their experience is on the other side of this one-to-one -one relationship. So we have to evolve our mind, change our mindset to not what I need to get done, but what does that person want to experience by working here and being on this team? 
and how does that build towards the collective and make it work? So I think those are the two areas, Mark, that you really have to look at when you think of those uh, two positions. So, so, so to, just to kind of wrap up on this topic, then, um, how does one go about changing your mindset? What are what are some of the steps involved? Yeah, I, I think you have to reflect. The first thing is take time. Uh, we don't take time uh, in at least American business for sure, and I think in a lot of other areas in the world. We don't take time to think through what happened today and what really is it that I wanted to have happen and how can I go back and learn from that. So I think that's one way, and that is kind of that learning by doing. Um, but also, what assumptions am I making of my team members? And are those assumptions really helpful? Are they warranted? Maybe I need to change how I view my team. And that kind of leads me towards, how do I communicate? And did I communicate well today? Was it clear? And did I achieve my intended results? But I think all of this comes under this, this guise of really, how do I understand someone else's experience? I want to give you a quick example of um, of an experiment they worked on a, a, some faculty members. Uh, well, what they did is they said, how can we look at what people really want out of work? And so they created this activity where people created origami objects out of paper, you know, where you fold them into different things. And naturally, if you're not terribly gifted at it, like me, it's hard to see what you're going to end up with. And try as you might, you never really get that swan or that flower or whatever it is you're trying to do. So they had a group of people who worked on these, and at the end they said, well, you know, you created something here, and it looks valuable at least to you, right? And they say, yeah, I thought it was fun, I enjoyed it. How much would you pay if you could buy this? We own it because you built it for us as a company, but if you were to buy it from us, how much would you pay? And they recorded all of these dozens uh, of people who went through this and how much they would pay to buy their piece of artwork back from the company. They then took a group of people and said, who had no idea what any of this was about, and said, take a look at these objects that were created. How much would you pay for them if you were to buy them right now? What would you think they're worth? As you can imagine, the value of what somebody placed on their own work versus what an outsider placed on it was vast. In other words, the people who wanted to buy it back felt very highly of their work, felt like because they put their time into it, it was worth a lot, and they wanted to remember that, and so they placed a high value on it. Those people who came in from the outside as observers, and essentially critics, if you will, um, put a very low value on it and said, why am I even doing this? You kind of need, you could throw them all in a wastebasket. And I, I want to point that out, is that as you approach things, when you talk about changing your mindset, it's changing it from how you view the work somebody's doing to how they view their own work. And in that process, begin to ask, am I making assumptions of the way I communicate that might be breaking down um, our, our, uh, both of our viewpoints to where they don't even like their own work, I don't like their own work, and why should we all work? And things just generally don't become much worth it. So I hope that helps um, in at least approaching changing your mindset. Yeah, that's a great example, Ted. Thank you. So, uh, Ted and Scott and Mark, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. And I want to thank our listeners as well. Please join us next time where we'll continue the conversation on the four imperatives. Mm-hmm.